0: It's so, been a long time. We're, uh, we're getting back this morning into our long-postponed study of the book of Nehemiah. And I want to invite you, if you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, to take it out or follow along on your message guide as we jump back into the story of a man Story of a message that was written over 2,500 years ago, but in many ways it could have been written just last week. The book of Nehemiah is the story of a community in chaos, a culture in crisis, but more than that is account. it is the account of one man's determination to do something about it. And that is why it's important that we study the book of Nehemiah now, as we look at our communities, as we look at our culture, as we look at our nation. You know, many of us are seeing things happen that we've never seen happen before, things that we never imagined happening before, and yet this is where we find ourselves, there's so much Devastation all around us right now in our culture, in our society. There's spiritual devastation, economic, psychological, you name it. And over these past weeks and months, I have found myself asking myself more and more God, what do you want me to do in response to this? How do you want me to respond? What, what legacy are you calling me to? A legacy that I'm going to leave my children, leave my grandchildren, who will one day, mark my word, look back on my life and see the kind of difference I made or the kind of difference I did not make in such a time as this. So I want you to know this morning, this is very personal for me. And I hope it's personal for each of you. It really has been a long time since we have been in the book of Nehemiah. And for that reason, I almost feel like I need to go back and re-preach every sermon I've preached in this series just to remind myself of where we've been, but obviously we're not going to do that this morning. However, I do want to remind you of three things that I would like to ask you to try to keep at the forefront of your thinking as we pick back up and move through this study. These things are very important. They will come into play every week as we look at the book of Nehemiah. So let me give you these three things once more if you'll remember them as we return to this story. Number one, God's method for solving problems, whatever those problems may be, God's method for solving problems, for bringing about change is never first a program. It is always a person. God is always looking for that person. He gives a person a burden. He gives a person a vision. He gives a person that fire in his or her bones which says, I cannot stand by and watch these things happen. God gives a person the guts to step out into the fray and try to be a difference maker. And that is part of the critical reason why We need to study this book at this time because God is still searching for Nehemiahs. He is looking looking for Nehemiahs today, right here, right now, among those of us seated here. Nehemiahs, people who will be difference makers for this time, for this day, for this generation. And that brings me to the second thing that I want you to remember. Not only that, that God doesn't look at programs, rather he looks at persons. Number two, second thing you need to remember is this. Nehemiah wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't an evangelist. He wasn't a missionary in the sense of that we think of those things today. He didn't attend seminary. His undergraduate degree wasn't in Christian studies. This was an ordinary guy working a secular job in a pagan kingdom surrounded by people who could not care less about God or the things of God. But Nehemiah made himself available to God. And because he made himself available to God, God was able to take Nehemiah, this one man, and in just 52 days, God was able to do something through Nehemiah that had not been accomplished in 141 years. In other words, in less than two months, God, through Nehemiah, was able to solve a 141-year-old problem. And that brings me to the third thing I want you to remember here this morning. Whenever God can find someone like Nehemiah, someone who will take him seriously. Someone who will take his word seriously. Someone who will take his purposes seriously. When God can find someone who will take him seriously, it doesn't take long for things to change. It doesn't take long for things to change. Whether they're in your personal life, or in your church, or in your family, or your community, or your nation. If you will take God seriously, He can do things you cannot even imagine. So with these three things in mind this morning, we come to Nehemiah chapter 2 and our text for the day. And here's the question I'm asking. What can I count on? When I take God seriously, what can I count on when I take God seriously? You see, a lot of people take God. They just don't take him very seriously. A lot of people take his word. They just don't take his word very seriously. A lot of people take the church. They just don't take the church very seriously Everybody takes life to some degree, but how many of us really take life seriously the way God intends for us to take it? Now, we all know what happens when we don't take God seriously. We can see it in the culture all around us. But I want to ask this morning, what happens when we do take God seriously as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth When we take God seriously, His Word seriously, His purposes seriously, what can we count on? Well, we can count on some things, incredible things to happen that just simply won't happen. They won't happen. They will not happen if we don't take God seriously. So, what will happen? Let me me share a couple of things with you. We're going to spend a few weeks here in chapter 2 working through this. But let me share a couple of things with you today. Here's lesson number one. When I take God seriously, I will engage, and that's the important word, I will engage God's power. When I take God seriously, I will engage God's power. Now, I've got some good news for you this morning right out of the chute. Our God has some power. Our God has some awesome power. But that does not mean everybody benefits from it the way we should. If I could make an analogy, I would make it this way. It's like getting in a car, pushing in the clutch, turning on the ignition, revving up the motor, but then going absolutely nowhere. Okay? Now, you've got some awesome power under that hood. You can hear it as you rev the motor. You might even can sense it, feel it, as you rev the motor. But until you put that car in gear and let the clutch out, so that you engage the transmission and all the energy fr- from that engine is transferred to the drive shaft, you can sit there and rub that motor up all day long, you're not going anywhere. God's power is real, and it is available to every single believer. It's available for every single situation and circumstance in your life, my friend. But if you want to engage with that power, if you want to see it at work in your life and in your circumstances, you have to take God seriously. You have to take His Word Seriously you have to take his purposes seriously. Now, very quickly, let's remember what's going on here in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, this this man is a Jew, but he is not living in Israel. He is not living in Jerusalem. He is living in Persia along with many other Jewish people who had been taken captive uh, by the armies of the Babylonian Empire when they came through and destroyed the city of Jerusalem back in 586 BC. Now, we talked about all this months ago. I don't have time to go back through all of that, but I did put a historical timeline back in your message guide so you can follow along and see what happened there because it really is important for you to know that. So the message guide will show you that chronology. So, Nehemiah chapter 1, here's Nehemiah, he's in Persia. He receives word from his brother, Hananiah, that his hometown, the city of Jerusalem, was still in ruins 141 years after the Babylonians had destroyed it. The Jewish people who were still living there were living there in absolutely awful conditions. And when Nehemiah received this word that the city was still devastated, the walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire, the people were living in shame, it broke Nehemiah's heart. So he prays a prayer in chapter one and we spent a great deal of time looking at that prayer in Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah was basically asking God, God, will you take me and use me to do something about the horrible situation that is in my hometown, Jerusalem. But in order to do something in Jerusalem, Nehemiah was going to have to leave Persia. And to leave Persia, he was going to have to get permission from the Persian king because that's who he worked for. So, if you look back, the very last verse of chapter 1, Nehemiah has prayed this prayer and he concludes it this way. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. He's talking about himself. God, give success to me today and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. What man? The king of Persia because that's who he was going to have to talk to. Nehemiah prays and he says, God, If if this king is going to give me permission to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, I can't make that happen. God, you're going to have to make that happen. Your power is going to have to come into play here. So I need you to grant me mercy. I need you to grant me favor in the king's sight. So let's look at what happens. Chapter 2, here we go, verses 1 through 6. In the month of Nisan, 29th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, O king, live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city? The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed with fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, there's a very important phrase here in that last sentence. It says, so it pleased the king to send me. You can't just read over that. So it pleased the king to send me. For you to understand what's happening here I need to share with you some of the reasons why it should have never, ever, ever pleased the king to send Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. couple of things here I'll share with you. Number one, according to the very last part of verse 11 of chapter 1, we know that Nehemiah uh, had a special job in the Medo-Persian kingdom. He was the cup bearer to the king. You see that in verse 11, he was the cupbearer to the king. Now we talked about this long time ago, but if you just look at that word cupbearer and you don't know anything about it, you might think, "Okay, well, that sounds like the butler or the waiter, maybe the guy who comes in and turns the king's bed covers down at night, kind of a menial job." No, no. This was not a menial job. In many ways, the cupbearer was the king's most trusted advisor. Because it was the job of the cupbearer to taste the king's wine before he drank it and to sample the king's food before he ate it. Because in that day, if you wanted to get rid of the king, the most common and effective way to do so was to poison him. So if somebody had slipped some poison into the king's food, well, long live the king, but so long cupbearer. That was his job, and so you can, you can imagine this great intimacy developed between the king and his cupbearer, and Artaxerxes, of all kings, had reason to be especially concerned about being poisoned because his own father before him, King Xerxes, had been assassinated, had been killed by one of his own servants. So if you're a king, and especially if you're Artaxerxes, you don't send your cupbearer lollygagging off thousand miles away, because if you do that, you are putting your own life at risk. So Artaxerxes should have never pleased him to send Nehemiah, because he was opening himself up to assassination in doing so. But there's another reason why it should never have pleased the king to send Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. And you, you might remember something from back when you were young, you first heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Do you remember something known as the law of the Medes and the Persians? the law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, the law of the Medes and the Persians simply stated that when a king of the Medo-Persian empire issued a decree, it became a law which could not be reversed even by the king who made it. And that is why if you read Daniel chapter six, you will understand why king, that particular Persian king, Darius, was so upset after he had issued a decree sending Daniel to the lion's den because he didn't want Daniel to go to the lion's den. His advisors tricked him into doing that. But after he had done it, he couldn't change it. And I put some verses down here for you from Daniel chapter six, six through eight, just so you can read from God's word and see what it says. Now, this is in Daniel chapter six. These are the, the king's advisors coming to him and saying to him, O King Darius, live forever forever. Establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition or whoever prays to any God or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Okay, you understand? King issued a decree, made a law, couldn't change it. Now, what does that have to do with Nehemiah? Well, in order to understand what that has to do with Nehemiah, we have to go look at another book, the book of Ezra, chapter 4. Now, let me tell you, give you a little background here, and we'll look at what's happening. In Ezra chapter 4, we read about a group of Jewish captives that had been allowed to go back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild the city. They were woefully uh, did a terrible job of that, really didn't get it done at all. And one of the reasons why, because those Jewish captives had some enemies who had written a letter to this very king that Nehemiah is talking to, King Artaxerxes, and in that letter, they were trying to convince the king that if he allowed the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt... That the Jews living there would rise up against him, they would rebel against him, they would refuse to pay tribute and refuse to pay taxes. And now if you look at this in Ezra chapter 4, verses 17 through 22, you'll see Artaxerxes responding to that letter, and here's what he says. Greetings to Governor Rehum, Secretary Shemshat, and to your advisors in Samaria and other parts of the western province. After your letter was translated and read to me, I had the old records checked. And it is true that for years, Jerusalem has rebelled and caused trouble for many other kings and nations. And powerful kings have ruled the western province from Jerusalem, and they have collected all kinds of taxes. So I want you to command the people to stop rebuilding this city. I give further notice do it right now so that no harm will come to the kingdom so there'd already been an instance where Jerusalem had attempted to be rebuilt the enemies of the Jewish people wrote a letter the king said you can't let them do that the king says you're right if they rebuild that city it's going to cause nothing but trouble They'll rebel against me, we'll have war, it'll be terrible. So here's the issue for Artaxerxes. Rebuilding the city of Jerusalem was seen by him as a threat to national security. In Artaxerxes' own words here, it would threaten the welfare of the kingdom. It would bring harm to the empire. It would cause problems for the royal interests. And, and kings just didn't let things like that happen. They just didn't. So because of the law of the Medes and the Persians, allowing this city to be rebuilt, even though Artaxerxes said, Don't, you can't rebuild it till I say so, it was going to require a complete reversal of foreign policy. Complete reversal of foreign policy. And that didn't happen either. Now let me share something with you. It pleased the king to send me. When it put the king's own life at risk, when it threatened the welfare of the Medo-Persian Empire, why did it please the king to send Nehemiah back to Jerusalem? Let me share a verse with you. Many of you may already know it. I share it all the time. Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it like a water course, however he pleases. Now, I love the good news translation. That's what I've got in your message guide. The Lord controls the mind of a king as easily as he directs the course of a stream. See, this is what God's power is able to do. I don't care what difficulty you're dealing with today. Doesn't matter what person or what problem or what circumstance, or what seemingly insurmountable obstacle or barrier may be confronting you this morning. If you will take God seriously, if you will take His Word seriously, if you will take His purposes seriously then the God of heaven has the power to deal with the earthly kings in your life, whoever or whatever those kings may be. That's the kind of power he has. But in order for you to engage that power you have to take God seriously. Here's a truth. God only dispenses his power when it is used for his purposes he he doesn't care about giving you his power just so you can use it on yourself build yourself up solve all your problems no God has a greater purpose in mind than that but when we have committed ourselves to him seriously his word seriously his purpose seriously then God will unleash the power of heaven on your behalf And you'll engage that power, and you'll be able to see it at work in your life. If you don't take God seriously, don't count on that happening in your life or in your circumstances. When I take God seriously, this word tells me, when I take God seriously, I will engage God's power, and I will see Him do things in my life that are beyond my ability to ever do. Now let's look at a second thing here quickly this morning. When I take God seriously, not only do I engage God's power, but when I take God seriously, I will experience God's provision. I will experience God's provision. I want to show you something amazing here. Look at chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. Nehemiah speaking, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, Let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter be written to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I ask, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So, all right. Now, watch this. Nehemiah has been called to do heaven's business, but he needs an earthly king to provide the materials. The king needs to provide all these building materials to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah didn't have that stuff. So he goes to the king. He goes to the government. He asks for the resources that he needs and he gets them. Really, in some sense, Nehemiah gets a government grant. He gets state funding for a spiritual agenda. Can I just say something here? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world is and all who live in it—that Psalm twenty-four, one. If you don't recognize it, what we're seeing here is this truth. Listen, church, you need to understand the wealth of the world, the provisions of the world. All of that belongs to God. Even, even, even the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the use of the righteous when God gets ready to use it. See, Artaxerxes wasn't a believer. He wasn't a follower of the God of Israel. He was a pagan king. But when the king of heaven has business to take care of, even the kings of the earth can't hold back what God wants to do. They cannot hold back what God wants to use to carry out his agenda. You see, Nehemiah didn't get all this stuff because he was a good planner. He didn't get all this stuff because he was a savvy politician. He didn't get all this stuff because he had good organizational skills, even though all that's true. We're going to see that. Nehemiah got all this stuff for one reason. Look at it there in verse 8. And the king granted me what I ask, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. Do Do you know why we struggle so much sometimes? Do you know why we have to plan and scheme and get all stressed out and break our necks, try everything we know to try to deal with this problem or that situation and, and we just see so little change? Might be a lot of reasons for that, but many times I believe the reason why we don't see that change is because the hand of the Lord is not on a lot of the stuff we're doing. See, when God's hand is on what we're doing, He'll provide. Do you see that? The good hand of my Lord was upon me. The provision of God is always tied to His hand upon His person. So... Nehemiah asked for letters of safe passage. He asked for wood to do the building. He gets those, but that's not all. Look at verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Do you know how you know when God's hand is on something? He does more than we ask for. See, Artaxerxes sent horses and soldiers along with Nehemiah. Nehemiah had not asked for horses and soldiers. He had asked for letters and wood. He got the letters and the wood, but he also got a military escort to go with him and protect him all the way to Jerusalem. Again, the earth is the Lord's. And he can take whatever he wants and he he can give it to whoever he wants to give it to because it all belongs to him. Now, some of you might be thinking this morning, okay, well, if that's true, why why aren't I seeing some of it? (laughs) Why aren't I getting in on that? Well, here's why. Here's the truth. And we really need to remember this. The provision of God is always tied to his program. The provision of God is always tied to his program. God's great purpose on this earth is not to build up your kingdom, it's not to build up my kingdom. It's, it's not to make us happy. It's not to make everything just go exactly the way we want it to go. No, God's purpose on this earth is to build up his kingdom, and that is why when he finds someone who will take him seriously, who will take his word seriously, and who will take his purposes seriously, he will provide whatever is necessary to see that his kingdom prospers through that person. And hey, this is still not all uh, that we see here. You have to go over to Nehemiah chapter 5 to see this, but look with me at verse 14 of chapter 5 of Nehemiah. We'll skip over a few pages. It says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance, of the governor. So, Nehemiah didn't just get letters and wood. He didn't just get horses and soldiers. He was actually appointed by the king to be the governor over the land of Judah. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think Nehemiah ever fathomed what all was going to happen when he prayed way back in chapter 1, verse 11? Lord, hear the prayer of your servant, grant me favor in the eyes of this man. Do you think he ever imagined all of this? I don't think so. But because he was a man who took God seriously, took his word seriously, took his purposes seriously, God did more. God did more than Nehemiah ever imagined. Ephesians 3.20, right? Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, immeasurably, more than we could ask, think, or even imagine according to his purpose power that is at work within us listen church you know God's in something when you ask him for a and he throws in b and c along with a you know God's in something when you ask him for a little and he gives you a lot you know God's in something when you ask him for one thing and he gives you more than you could ever ever imagine I mean, Ruth asked for a husband. God gave her me, right? (laughs) Terrible. (laughs) Listen. When you take God seriously, He outdoes the request when you do things His way. And the longer I live, the more convinced I become That the reason why many of us do not see God move in our lives and in our circumstances is because we just don't want to do things God's way. We want to do things our way. We don't want to follow God's plan. We want to follow our plan. So we don't see His hand at work in our lives, and we certainly don't see Him doing immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine and the more tragic thing is we by by not doing that what we do is we continue to buy into satan's lie that we'll be happier and we'll be more fulfilled and things will go better for us if we do it our way <laughs> Instead of His way. That we'll somehow be happier in disobedience than we will be in obedience. No, it never works that way. There are a lot of broken people, broken relationships, broken lives, broken dreams today because people didn't take God seriously. They didn't take His Word seriously. They didn't take His purposes seriously. Many of you know the name C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of things, said a lot of stuff. (laughs) Many of it quote worthy. But one of the things that C.S. Lewis said is one thing I have just, it's just continued to rattle around in my head and in my heart ever since I heard it years and years and years ago. C.S. Lewis said this. The only thing that Christianity cannot be, the only thing that Christianity cannot be is moderately important. If it is true, if God is who He says He is, we cannot afford to let our faith be moderately important. It must be the pinnacle of our lives. It must be the preeminent goal after which we strive. It must be the overriding passion of our hearts and of our lives. It's time to take God seriously. Because when you do that, you will engage His power. You will experience His provision. And God will work through you like He did in Nehemiah to do more than you could ever imagine. I want to get in on that. I hope you do too. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time this morning. We're grateful for an opportunity to to open Your Word again, to look back at this incredible story of Nehemiah. I pray You'll help us to realize, Lord, again this morning, as is the case every time we open Your Word, we're we're not looking at ancient history. Uh, We're not looking just at something that took place a long, long time ago in a far, far away place. We're looking at our lives. We're looking at our story. We're looking at our experience of what it means to walk with you. We're looking at, at ourselves and measuring ourselves against what it really means to take you seriously. What it means to take your word seriously. What it means to take your purposes seriously. The, the goals of your kingdom seriously. And I just pray, Lord, as, as we've prayed all these uh, weeks and months and years together here that you will raise up from this place those who will take their place as difference makers, as those through whom you can work to bring real and desperately needed change to our own lives, our church, our families, our community, our nation, and among the nations. Oh Lord, we just ask you right now to take these truths from your word and show us where we need to apply them in our own individual hearts and lives that you might take us and raise us up as Nehemiahs for this generation. It's the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to join me in standing, if you would. We're going to sing together. This is an opportunity if you need to respond in some way. We understand the the concerns health-wise, so you feel free and you can always do business with the Lord right where you're seated. But these altars are open as well if you just feel like you want to come up here and kneel and uh, just pray a prayer. Ask God to do whatever it is that you sense He's wanting to do in, with, and through your life. If I can pray with you, I'll do so from an appropriately safe distance. There are other staff here who would be delighted to pray with you. If you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior this morning, we would love to introduce Him to you, let you know about the difference He can make in your life, because everything we've talked about this morning, none of it's possible apart from Christ changing your life. You're receiving Him as your personal Lord and Savior. And we'd love to share that with you this morning. Maybe you need a church home and a church family. God would lead you to be a part of what He's doing here. Those decisions or any others, as we sing this morning, worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, would you sing that from your heart this morning? And would you come as God speaks right now as we sing?